Welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast is created by Notation, a pre-seed venture capital firm based in Brooklyn, New York. We invest in amazing technical teams and projects in New York City on day zero. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. Season three of Origins is sponsored by Silicon Valley Bank and Carta, formerly known as eShares. Silicon Valley Bank is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors, with a dedicated practice for emerging managers. They've been friends and partners to Notation since the beginning. To learn more about SVB services, visit svb.com. We use Carta at Notation and recommend it to all the startups we work with. But something you might not know is that Carta has a product for LPs too. Carta for LPs allows you to easily sign, send, and store K1s, manage capital calls, review investment KPIs, and more. You can learn more about Carta at carta.com. Today we have Semel Shaw, general partner at Haystack, an early stage investor based here in San Francisco. We're on the road. We're in, in an undisclosed location. Yeah, this does feels like an underground bunker. <laughs> uh, uh, welcome, Semel. Thanks for having me. Great to see you twice in one week. That's right. To kick us off, um, could you just tell us a little bit about uh, your background and uh, and how you came to be a VC at Haystack? Sure. The background uh, kind of bullet point includes uh, a stint of thinking I would go to law school and working for the Manhattan DA. Nice. Uh, working as a professional cook. Mm-hmm. Uh, Where was that? Um, in New York and a little bit in San Francisco. Okay. Yeah. I thought I would take that lifestyle. I read Kitchen Confidential. The best. One of the best books. And um, it's a hard life mm-hmm. for people who do it. So uh, let's see. Where'd you grow that- up? Grew up in Connecticut in New York. Okay. Yeah. Very, very fortunate for that. And uh, had a stint in the nonprofit side in the world. The nonprofit was in the world of finance and economic development. Mm-hmm. And then uh, kind of after grad school, moved out here and got involved in the startup scene. And I didn't really realize at that time what was happening in the world, which was the world economy was shifting at the same time I was moving back here for my second tour in the Bay Area, moving from finance-driven to technology-driven and that the epicenters of that shift were, you know, kind of China and the U.S. and Right. And what year was that? Right at the end of 2010 and 2011, basically. Okay. Yeah. When did you start writing and blogging? I want to say you it was became a, a pretty active blogger bef- previous to Haystack, no? Oh, v- very much so. Yeah. So it was, yeah. it was probably late 2010, uh, 2011. Uh, folks will ask, like, how, how did you get into it? And it was a couple, couple of ways. Someone introduced me to AVC, Fred's blog before I even knew what like tech and startups were. Um, And then through, through just reading that occasionally, not daily, I learned of uh, Chris Dixon's blog, who he was in New York at the time. And Chris and I had a mutual friend and I had been on Twitter. So we met a couple of times again, not really understanding that world. And then when I moved out here, I was really reading uh, Arrington and MG and just following how they wrote. And if you go back to some of the posts that they wrote, at that time, they were so right about some things that we just use on a daily basis now. Right. Um, so got to know them. And then I would just 
fire up my own blog. I think the first one was on on Posterous or Posterous, mm-hmm. Gary Tan yeah, and Suchin, sure. who are both friends now. Sure. Um, and then I just started doing it. If I look back at those original ones, th- they were pretty bad. Um, and then I just started doing it more and more. And then I can't really explain what happened, but people started reading it and sharing it. And, you know, with all of the content that's being shared in our online communities now, it's sort of like peer reviewed. And it just right. so happened that like a lot of VCs were reading it as well. And they, it would start off, they would email me and comment on something I've written or ask to meet for coffee. And then the coffees turn into meet my partner. And then mm-hmm. the, the meet my partner turned into, hey, would you consider working here? Right. And then it turned into, hey, let's get you in business. When did you start angel investing? So I, I, so to be technical here, I've never had my own capital to angel invest. Okay. So the first check I wrote was in March of 2013. Okay. And that was all other people's capital. I mean, I put in a little bit of my own yeah. um, to sort of have skin in the game. But that was like the first check. And that was a, a pooled vehicle, a, a VC fund, just a very small was that fund. was it called Haystack? It was. And and how did how did that come to be? Yeah, I was actually just talking with my friend about this. So a good friend of mine, Alex Gurovich, is a partner at Javelin uh, Ventures in San Francisco. They're on their fourth, about one hundred twenty five million dollar fund. The two gentlemen who started that, Jed Katz and Noah Doyle, uh, Alex kind of brought me in when I was in between startup gigs, and they just said, "Hey, hang out with us as an EIR for six months." Right. And um, Jed kind of saw the deal flow I was bringing in and I was just meeting entrepreneurs every 45 minutes and he said, hey, you make my haystack smaller. <laughs> and so that kind of just stuck with me. Nice. Yeah. Did they back you? No. Like for that first fund? No. I didn't ask them and yeah, but they didn't. But a lot of a lot of VCs and entrepreneurs did who I knew. Okay. Yeah. And it took me about just the stats on that. I raised a million dollars. Okay. It took me about eight months and I was okay. deploying and raising the capital at the same time. And this is in 2013. Uh, correct. And so I guess walk us through, like, was there a, was there structure to it? I, I mean, I, I guess from what I can tell, you were meeting all these founders, you wanted to start investing. Uh, I assume these were mostly individual LPs that you went to. What was the pitch? Well, what was the pitch to the founders or to the people investing in the fund? No, to the LPs. So, as you put this million dollars together. So there were people that knew me already that wanted to put me in business. So it would give me 10,000, 25,000. 25,000 was like the the main check size. Right. And then a couple of them were really generous in introducing me to their kind of long kind of Rolodex of entrepreneurs who had done well and also other investors who liked newer, smaller funds. So that kind of just snowballed from there. I wouldn't say it was easy, mm-hmm. but I had a lot of people making, you know, second derivative, third derivative mm-hmm. intros for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and the pitch was like, you know, I had a little slide deck and I just said, hey, I'm going to write 25 to 50K checks mm-hmm. and just try to cut my way in. There right. was really no structure. Now, now, to answer your question on the structure side, there was a proper fund. Right. There was a proper LPA. Yep. Okay. Um, there was not a PPM. Okay. I haven't done a PPM for any fund. Okay. Yeah, so it was all legally set up. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think I remember my mom asking me, like, can you actually do that? Like, should you be doing that? <laughs> uh, this is a very specific question, but a million-dollar fund, don't you pay, like, half the fund in fees and accounting take, and stuff like that? I didn't like take that? fees in the first fund. Okay. And I had a 20% carry on it. Okay. And I was consulting with other firms at the time. And so the the real sort of like B-side podcast dungeon story 
is that even though I knew a lot of firms and I have a lot of friends, a lot of firms, and I'm very lucky to have all those relationships, no one would hire me. I mean, I just did not fit the profile and also didn't have the experience to be a professional investor. So out of that kind of frustration, I was like, okay, you know, I had a couple of friends pull me aside. You probably know Nakul at, at who's at Lightspeed now and, sure. and Gotham Gupta, who's CEO of Nature Box. Okay. You know, they, they just said, look, stop, stop trying to get a job. Right. Stop trying right. to get a job. Just go do it. Keep consulting with the firms. They're going to still support you. Go. What does consulting with the firms mean? So when they, you know, going back when I was mentioning to you that a lot of these folks started reading my writing and then meeting me for coffee and then introducing me to their partners. um, What happened is one very well-known firm approached me and they were like, hey, we talked about hiring you. And that idea was crushed because of everything I just mentioned before. But we got clearance to bring you on as a consultant. We'll pay you a little bit per month. Check with your boss. Okay. And that kind of snowballed to a point where over a three-year period, I was working – I worked as a paid consultant for seven different funds, most of them on Sand Hill. And at one time, I worked with five concurrently. So they all wow. kind of trusted me not to kind of share state secrets across fund. Hmm. Um, none of it was sourcing-based. It was just like, hey, help us evaluate hmm. deals. And it kind of mutated into different hmm. things. So I kind of got to see how cool. they operated. Yeah, right. yeah. How did you learn? You know, it, it's sort of like a multi-input learning model where – you know, like podcast is a big input now. Back then, it was a, a lot of blogs, a lot of sitting in meetings, a mm-hmm. lot of driving to and from a pitch where you talk to the investor before and after, a lot of sitting in partner pitches where you hear how a deal is prosecuted or shut down. Right. So, right. a lot, of, I would say a lot of like in person audio auditory learning, right? You can't pick up a blog post, you can't go to class for it. We're going to talk about Haystack today in a little bit, but. Was there an overarching strategy or theme or playbook with that first million dollar fund? A couple of answers to that. I did think about themes back then. I don't okay. know. Okay. And I thought, oh, online to offline or new types of microservices and infrastructure or, you know, these standard things you would see on a VC website. And maybe that or marketplaces, right? Maybe that led me to some good places, but it's kind of generic. In reality, I've just always felt like, you know, people ask, like, how did you do this? Or what's your strategy? Or what's your approach? And I always just, I feel like a dog chasing cars. Hmm. Yeah. There's almost like if I caught one, I wouldn't know what to do with it. <laughs> what were some of the worst mistakes that you made looking back then? Or or what are some of the things maybe that you did in error that you've kind of shed? Do you mean from, from an investment today? point of view or just operational point of view? Either. Yeah, I would say investment point of view, there's only one deal that I lose sleep over where I probably, you know, it was very early. Right at the time I was doing the Instacart investment, I got an intro to Brian Armstrong from Coinbase. I was interested in that world. I probably could have met him. We had mutual friends. I'd like to hope I probably could have invested 25K and that would have Mm -hmm. been a really smart move. Mm -hmm. And we talked on the phone. I just wasn't aggressive about following up. And that was a mistake. I think operationally a mistake was... But but, so that's a... A mistake because like it's a very specific example of maybe a deal that you missed. But yep. if you were to maybe zoom out a bit, do you think there was a there was a, a like a larger oh, like um plenty. more systemic issue in terms of maybe missing that specific deal? That's, like like maybe at the time you just 
there were lots of things that you weren't following up with and and you've but that one i asked for the intro to him right i did everything right. i just wasn't aggressive about closing the loop on our thread right why um i just felt like i was badgering him a little bit but mm-hmm. i should i should have been badgering him right 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 <laughs> um i think more systemic was a couple of things i probably should have been more aggressive about trying to raise two million instead of one million mm-hmm I probably should have made those initial investments be 50K or 100K Mm -hmm. and done fewer Mm -hmm. rather than all 25K. Mm -hmm. Um, Looking back, you know, that's probably what I should have done. And I I probably should have bought, you know, operationally, once I started to do the second fund, brought on a proper back office sooner. Hmm. I kind of outsourced that to to a firm that's very nice, but this wasn't their core competency. Mm -hmm. And sort of like paying through the technical debt of that. We can talk about that later. But just, you know, getting the proper controls in place for managing other people's money. That right. was all foreign and new to me. Did you consider partners at that time? I didn't. The only time I started thinking about partners is when I was raising my third fund, which was an $8.2 million fund. I just finished deploying it. It was a full two-year fund. That was the first time I met institutional LPs. And a lot of the, you know, I used those meetings just to get feedback and sort of break the ice with them. Yeah. And a big piece of feedback was, hey, partner up with somebody Hmm. for a variety of reasons. So I really thought about it. And in between doing fund three and four, there were definitely three or four people that I identified in my, in my own head, you know, Hey, I would love to work with this person in this capacity and explore those things. It just didn't work out for this fund. So it's sort of, I'm here now by myself just because I've been, you know, the dog chasing cars. Yeah. Um, But it's not my intention. Like I don't have an ambition to do something just solo. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you know, you know, you partnered with Alex, it's a, it's a pretty intimate decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just want to make sure that if, and when it happens, I'm just super, super excited. Yeah. yeah. Walk us through how you went from fund one to fund two and then, and then maybe three. Sure. So fund one, I tried to raise five, could only raise one. Right. Deployed it in about 18 months. Yep. Fund two, I tried to raise 10, could only raise 3.2. Mm-hmm. Uh, deployed that in about 18 months, but it felt a little bit faster. And mm-hmm. there were a lot of mistakes in that fund we can talk about in terms of just how I managed it. Let's uh, talk about it. Yeah. And then fund three, I'll just close this out, was 8.2, try to raise 20, try to go to institutions mm-hmm. and deploy that over two, two years where I felt like it was very solid, measured mm-hmm. pace with good follow, follow mm-hmm. on and some bulking up. Yep. The mistakes in fund two were just I was... I think the environment was too loose. The vintage was like 2014, 15. Yeah. I was also too loose. Um, I was trying to prove some things that I think didn't re- don't really matter anymore. Hmm. Like what? Um, so if we take a step back, and you know, as you've gone through institutional financing, no one knows how good you are, how good Alex is, how good Nick is, how good Samil is. So they look at proxies for that. And what are the proxies? Which companies are you already in? Yeah. How much of those companies raised? Yep. Who followed your deals? Yep. Now, is that are all those proxies correlated with the outcome? Hmm. TBD. Hmm. And so I was tuning my behavior to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's a really good point. You know, even if I look back on our first fund, definitely there's that there's that little birdie in the back of your head, which is like, I think this might get written up by Firm X rather than this is a company that I love that I think long term is going to be great. Yeah. And that's what you're describing. Yeah, there's a yeah. piece of that. There's also just the, I would say, operational 
what's the word? Lack of discipline in terms of like doing something fast because I right. just like the person or, right. you know, I kind of just felt like, hey, just keep going. Keep chasing the cars. Yep. You know. So fun to largely similar in strategy and playbook. And well, well, I did a couple things differently. Okay. So instead of writing 25K checks, I was writing 50 to 100K checks. And then I wrote, I bulked up in four companies. So I put a third of the fund into four companies. Okay. Because I wanted to show people that I could follow on. Yep. Without having pro rata. Yep. Never had pro rata that I've asked for before. Yep. And I wanted to show I could write a larger check into a company. Yep. Can you say which companies? Yeah. So I, I bulked up in Chariot, which yep. was sold to Ford. Yep. Uh, that turned out to be a good decision. I bulked up in Managed by Q. Yep. Uh, co- local company for you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's easy with Dan to know that Dan will go the distance. Mm-hmm. And I was very lucky in that the early stage investors in that company were all people I knew really well. Yeah. Um, I bulked up in Clara Labs, which is a uh, kind of email and scheduling mm-hmm. AI mm-hmm. Uh, company. Uh, really compelling, interesting, quirky, fun founders. Mm-hmm. Um and then the other one was Lux Valet, which was mm-hmm. just sold to Volvo, mm-hmm. you know, which which probably won't be the merit of that investment decision for me. Probably, you know, mm-hmm. I was I'm glad I made the investment and I love the team. Probably yep. financially not and, not a great decision. And this is you going to founders saying, hey, I know I don't have pro rata, but we've worked closely with each other since the beginning. And I'd love the opportunity to. Invest yeah, each one by. was a little bit different with Clara Labs. I had to really fight to get in the deal to begin with. And then I. I helped them hire two people out of their right. 11 person team. So they were like, okay, you earned your re up. Yeah. With, right. Ch- with Chariot, I was very close with the founder and was his real first professional investor and really got him most of the other investors. So he and I are like buds. So he was like, whatever you want to do, it comes out of my backside. That's fine. With managed by Q, I think the same thing. Uh, Dan and I are pretty close and I think he felt like, Hey, it'd be great to just, you know, I want to help you as well. And you know, a lot of this, you know, this Nick, a lot of it is the entrepreneurs help us, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They create opportunities for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and with Lux, uh, you know, very close friends with, with Sarver, mm-hmm. uh, who, who led the series a and love working with Ryan and will want to work with them again. And so that was just easy. And I knew Curtis really well. As you were raising these funds and, you know, we've had a number of people on this podcast that, could raise lots of money and, you know, maybe don't raise as much as they can. And then there's some other folks that it is hard to raise capital for these funds in the early days. What, where, where do you get the most pushback? And I want to talk about your new fund, which I, I understand uh, went very well from a fundraising perspective, but where did you get the most pushback in the early days? And why do you think not to be discouraging, but why do you think you maybe fell short at your targets? Oh yeah. I'm happy to talk about each one. So in fund three, which was the $8.2 million fund, started raising it in spring of 2015. That was the first taste and exposure I had to a lot of the LPs now we know as friends. Right. Particularly the institutional folks, the fund of funds. Endowments, endowments, foundations, fund of funds, family offices. Really tried to understand and learn from them their business model, their philosophy, their outlook on the ecosystem in general, their outlook on where we were in the cycle. And I wouldn't say I was naive in the sense that I, I thought maybe one or two would take take right. a look because right. there were some really, really good marks in the first fund, especially. Yep. Um, and kind of 
kind of three to four months into that fundraise, I kept the fund open for a year purposefully so that I could meet more and more LPs as as an excuse. Mm -hmm. But really like four or five months in, I was like, this could be a turd. Right. (laughs) What was the pitch to the institutions? The pitch? What was the, what was the story you were telling at the time? I was like, you know, looking back, it's like not a very exciting story. It's like, Hey, I'm raising a $20 million fund. These are all the big people that know me. Mm-hmm. These are all the people that have invested in me. These are the companies I'm in. You know, what do you think? Mm-hmm. So it was pretty dull. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I had maybe a little bit of an advantage in that a lot of them had read what I had been writing before. Okay. And a lot of them had their GPs proactively kind of say, hey, take a look. Right. So I had some structural advantages going in, but even without those, and we should come back to that, it's still very, very difficult. What was the most common yeah. answer that you heard in terms of why they passed? Well, let's talk about this because I think it'll be useful for your audience. So no particular order. There are just a bunch of people who in their mandate or when they take the committee can't do a single GP fund. Okay. Just won't touch it. Just, okay. Hey, my committee is going to crap all over that. Yep. Not going to happen. Yep. So That's not to say there aren't yes. a bunch of single GP funds that are very successful. That, that's not to say, but I'm just saying if we're talking about funnel optimization and percentages. They just won't do it. They just won't do it. Okay. They won't do it. And I actually don't blame them. Mm-hmm. I don't blame them. And why is that, you think? It's just because if something happens to you or you decide you don't want to you do know, it. You know, I it's think just... the reason that is said for legal re- or for like the legal LPA side of it is what happens to you if Nick or Samil's, you know, hit by Muni? Right. Right. I think the reality is also just, hey, if Nick is looking at a deal but Alex is holding his feet to the fire. Right. And I like Nick and Alex and I like their interaction. I'm just going to feel like it's an extra filter on mm-hmm. that decision. Mm-hmm. And I think that has a lot of merit. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I put on an LP hat, I'd probably buy that argument. Right. Um, I think second is just size and structural. We've probably talked about, you probably yep. talked about a lot in this podcast, which is, you know, I always use a 10, 10 by 10 to 100 rule, which is, most LPs want to be 10% of a fund and write a $10 million check. Yep. So if you're writing, doing anything less than a $100 million fund, it's just structurally difficult for yep. people. Now, that's kind of on the surface. Let's go beneath that. I think people don't want to be in somebody's first institutional fund. It's kind of like how a VC will say, like, go raise from friends and family and seed funds and then yep. come to me when yep. you're ready. They're outsourcing their risk to other capital providers. Mm-hmm. That also makes sense. Mm-hmm. I think that there's definitely a preference for people who are spinouts from other venture funds. And I think the primary reason there is because they have been exposed to something you cannot learn on YouTube, in a blog, in other places, which is how does an right. elite institution manage capital across funds? Mm-hmm. The problem with doing spinouts, and I met some people who only did spinouts even though they didn't even realize it is that you're essentially asking for adverse selection because the very, very best people are going to be kept within their fund. Hmm. And hmm. so that's not to say that Maybe. that's always the case. Right, right. Um, but I think that as a pattern, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see soon. Right. Other reasons people would push back, you know, let's say around differentiation. I don't understand how the next Travis is going to find Notation or find Haystack. Like, mm-hmm. why? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a little bit flawed because 
you really have to go talk to the founders about why they chose certain people and how they actually raise money. And also in the seed world, not every deal, every good deal is a hot deal and vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. Another piece of pushback, which I think is the most legitimate pushback out there is, hey, I see you wrote a 25K check in this company and a 50K check in this good company. And hey, you put 100 or 200 in this good company. Can you write consistently a 750K to a million dollar check in a good company right. for ownership? Yep. And a lot of people just don't meet that bar. So I want to talk about this fund just raised. Yes. You haven't announced it yet. I'm doing a, a Rolling Thunder podcast announcement. So no you official are. announcement. No official announcement. No. Okay. Can we say how big it is? Yeah. $23 million. $23 million fund. Yeah. Haystack, technically Haystack 4. Technically Haystack, Roman numeral 4. Boom. There you go. Yeah. Fancy. Yeah. Fancy. That's fancy, yeah. It's going to be etched into the wine that I <laughs> yes. sent you. So t- tell us about raising this fund. There are some institutional LPs in there. Um, can you say who? I cannot. Okay. So tell us about raising that fund, what went differently, what you think got some folks yeah. over the line, and uh, and what the strategy is around that going forward. Sure. So I'll, I'll kind of answer that in two parts. There's just like the technique and the what I did, and then more the emotional side of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so I just recently wrote something because right. I get a lot of um, people asking me like, hey, what, what should I do or how did you do That's it? That's right. And and for our audience, yep. just, you know, you just wrote a a really great post about transitioning from a non institutional venture firm to an institutional venture firm and yep. all the things that you did yep. along the way. So, um, if folks want to read more about it, they yes. can on your blog. Yeah, they can on my blog. the The basic idea is to think about it as a campaign. Uh, that's a framework I use, and that there's a pre marketing campaign. Mm-hmm. There's the actual campaign, and there there's the closing mechanics and right. herding of cats. The pre-marketing stuff I go through on the blog, um, there's a lot of detail to go through, and I think you can, you can kind of go through there like a checklist. But the main thing is that pre-marketing should be months and months of pre-marketing. Yep. So kind of like this, the analogy I would use is Star Wars, right? We're all going to go watch a movie, but we're going to watch three trailers probably a hundred times <laughs> over the next six months before it comes out. Yeah. And that's what people need in general. That's what mm-hmm. LPs need to put you mm-hmm. in the pipe. Mm-hmm. And so those those should be casual conversations. Those should be who do I connect with, who do I like. Yep. They're just these natural filters. Yep. Now I'm sure you And guys, how many of those do you think you had? Well, I only did it in two or three months. And so it was really just tactical getting feedback, like, hey, I'm gonna go. Yep. If I were to do it again, I'd probably make it a little bit longer mm-hmm. and sort of like more of a front porch, you know, sit on the front porch thing. How many people are on your list though? Or firms? I interacted with I don't know the exact count, but it's well over 200 distinct email, wow. phone, wow. sorry, phone or in-person touch points with institutional grade LPs. Wow. 200 yes. firms? 200 separate firm, wow. separate entities. Wow. Yeah. Over. Over the course of those three months? No. Over the course of that pre-marketing was more of an insidery sure. thing. Okay. So probably so like smaller. 40. Okay. 40. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. What do you think ultimately got some folks over the line? I, I think only in retrospect that this worked out, but a couple of things. There were three things I told everybody up front that I stuck with and I, I stuck with them because I believed in them and I just physically didn't have the capacity to do anything else. So I just kind of just put my foot in this, like, like I dug my foot in and I was like, this is it. So I, I gave mm-hmm. them a target range. Mm-hmm. I said, one, I'm not going to go over this target range. Mm-hmm. I don't want a dollar more. I'm afraid of having a dollar more than this amount. 
So there was no hard cap, but I just said, you know, I want to raise 25 to 35. Mm -hmm. And, you know, would you take 40 and we do half? No. Mm -hmm. Just cut it off right there. Yep. Um, Secondly, I budgeted six months for the actual campaign. And I kind of just said, look, this is what I have mental energy for. Right. And that turned out to be the right amount because, and I'll get to this, like, I ran out of gas at the end. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just like, oof, mm-hmm. this is yeah. too much. Yeah. Um, and then I said, no special or funky closes. So people would be like, well, hey, well, you know, we have our, um, you know, an offsite in August and then we'll we'll decide in September. Is that okay? And you can reopen it. And I was like, if you can't decide in six months, like, yeah. I'm not going to be Yeah. I'm just going to take it as a signal that it's not of interest and that's okay. So it's just like not listening to the words and just saying like, if it's not within that time, it's just not going to work out. And so what ended up happening, I think at the end, at the very, very tail end is only when it picked up the last, like literally the last Hmm. 10 business days. Hmm. Okay. (laughs) So it really was like the Reggie Miller game Hmm. that I cite. Hmm. I felt like that. Um, A lot of people also said no during that time. And Mm -hmm. I think, because I was so consistent in telling them when I was stopping that a lot of people respected that and remembered it yeah, and kind of called or emailed and said, Hey, enjoyed getting to know you. I know that you're finishing up now. We, we can't go. And so that was really appreciated. So, but if it all happened, question for you, if it all happened in the last 10 days, oh yeah, why not just move the deadline up earlier? If ultimately everybody was going to make a decision, yes or no, in those last 10 days, why not have the deadline be three months earlier? Well, I think some of those people that did end up saying yes needed that second quarter. Okay. I also tend now to just think in quarters. Okay. I don't know why. Okay. So everything is like a quarter to me. Sure. And also I kind of felt that I mentally kind of budgeted the time with like a family trip we were taking and when people kind of check out for the summer and I felt like I had enough energy to go that that long. Um so I was just going to say, okay, I'll just fight with the army that I have. That was the other thing I did. I told everybody, they're like, well, what if you don't hit it? I'm like, it's fine. All right. Keep going. Yeah. I'll keep doing what what, yeah. what you've been doing. Yeah. Um, so, so how so, is this different now? Yeah. But there, there are two other things I wanted to mention on sure. your question. So I think what gets people over the line that people probably underestimate is the, and you've gone through this and you know this, the heavy referencing that people do. Mm-hmm. It's the opposite of cramming for a test. So if you're smart enough and like you've got the right notes from your friends and you can kind of know how to cram, you can cram for a test. You can't cram for the referencing. Yeah. So, you know, it was pretty unsettling when people that I know really, really well, who I still trust and I've been to their house and I've done deals with them and they've coached me, mentored me. They point out the weaknesses in the reference. They point out all that stuff and you're like, okay. (laughs) You know, people are watching every behavior that you've demonstrated will be cited by someone doing a lot of referencing. So it's pretty hard if you're not extremely referenceable mm-hmm. with some real examples to, to break through. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, I would just say the, the emotional side of, of going through the six months, if I were to plot on a curve, there was, there was one point where I got nervous. Now, luckily that happened very early. The omen occurred yep. very early. And there was one point where I was really down. Yep. So, so that that was kind of the wave. So, right in like towards the end of like midway through January, I was in the market for two weeks, and someone who I gotten to know pretty well. They only have seven kind of core relationships, of which I know for the principals very, very well. They all reached out to them. I met them. I was on Sand Hill Road, 
and I knew that this person was across the street on Sand Hill Road in an annual meeting. So I sent them a message. In an hour, they wrote me back and said, sorry, totally booked on this trip, sent for my iPad. And I was like, oh my, you know, that kind of just like. They don't care. Not that they don't. Yeah. Right now they don't care. Right. And this one isn't happening. And you have all the right intros. Right. And you already met them a right. bunch of times. So luckily that happened like January 17th or 18th. I'll, I'll remember that. And I remember talking to a couple of friends and they were like, yeah, that's not good. Mm. So mm. I got scared early. Mm-hmm. And then. Um, the second, the second piece, which wasn't a low point, it was just kind of surprising is like, I did a first close and I thought I would be at least halfway there with one institution. Definitely not the case. Right. I'd only raised a little bit more than the previous fund. So it was kind of, I remember like writing the lawyer and I was like, can you tally that up again? (laughs) (laughs) It was like, you know, counting the chips of like, that can't be right. And then right around Memorial day, I remember my dad was visiting here and I took like a day or two off to just like cart the kids around with him and, uh. I remember just thinking like, this is effed. Hmm. Like, I'm just going to have to reorient. Hmm. You know, I remember talking to like a bunch of folks who had mentored me, like Peter from Lux and uh, a couple of other guys just said like, hey, I'm going to go out with uh, the fund in the teens and be happy and just kind of reorienting. Hmm. I was going to finish out, but I basically just said, hey, this ain't happening. I think every fundraise goes through those moments for founders, for VCs. Yeah. I think, I think I've always been a believer that through every single financing, there's always that moment where you're like, yep. it's fucked. <laughs> yeah. You know? So luckily uh, I, I kind of hit bottom for a couple of days and then I already had like two trips in New York set and I was really excited to go to New York on both these trips. I'm like, just going to have fun. Yep. Yeah. Lay it all out yep. and go. So how's the strategy different for this one? This is TBD. This is going to be the next podcast because I'm okay. figuring it out. And okay. I mean, you'd be a great person to get advice from, which is the stuff, you know, the, the, the issue that I'm going to have to work out now is the stuff that got me here today isn't going to work moving forward. And so I've got to think about pacing the yeah. type of person I want to partner with, who I want to co-invest with. Um, I've never thought about what my ownership is in a company before. Mm-hmm. Never. Mm-hmm. I mean, 20, 25 million or just under $25 million fund. Yeah. I mean, presumably you're, you're a lead investor and, in or or co-lead in 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 some what you I'm know, probably going to do sales. is lead a couple yep over the course of three years and lead and lead a couple like lead a lead a seed round like a two million dollar yeah. seed round yeah 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 um I'm probably going to be um a larger syndicate partner for people that I like working with mm-hmm. and that's a call it two to three hundred k type of check what I say is like between three fifty and seven fifty okay. But you so know, seven fifty your lead, three fifty your follow. But to me, like the main thing and what I was getting to, especially in the Bay Area, is just trying to find people that I have a lot of personal conviction in, and like the authenticity meter. Mm-hmm. Because right now I'm just very, very nervous about how many people are starting funds, how many people are starting companies, and just trying to test like what's the drive and resolve to finish the work. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And and that's hard. So I'm, tr- I'm just trying to be super conservative and careful about that piece of it. More concentrated strategy? I, I think relative to the past, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And what does that mean? Again, it's TBD. I'm literally working it out now. Um, Would you call a $23 million seed fund, a pre-seed fund? I mean, this came up at the Sandana conference. I want to mention this. So I, I don't get lost in the terms. I yep. just think I'm I'm a sort of disciples of the May 
Mapleian strategy, Mike mm-hmm. Maple strategy, or his line, which is your fun size is your strategy. Yep, I've always I've always believed that. We actually talked about that on our the last podcast we just did. Did you have have you had Mike on by the way? No, we should. should. Oh, you should. I'll I'll set that up for okay. you. I think if you're un- so regardless of GP, regardless of stage, if you're under twenty million, you don't really need a model. You can kind of get away with murder. Yep. If you're twenty to forty, you have to start getting between five to ten points. Mm-hmm. And if you're over forty, which was kind of my line cutoff line, I think you have to act like you know, like a great seed fund, like homebrew or freestyle, yeah, where you're ownership driven and concentrated, yeah, and really picking. Um, and I just think the issue in the environment is you have funds that are way over forty, calling themselves pre-seed. Really? Sure. Wow. But the math doesn't work. Now, now you can bulk up in companies, but I just don't think even the smartest people like can can manage a bandwidth to to find all those. Yeah. Stepping back for a sec, how would you describe Haystack today? You're looking at it. Yeah. <laughs> I I think of it as like. I'm I'm very fortunate to be here. I had a th- 101 plus people help me and that I just want to be, um, you know, I feel like I'm very lucky that people read what I write and follow what I write and people come my way, uh, you know, stop by my shop, if you will. Um, and I just want to find people who are, they, there's a line of sight between what they were doing before, way before this was cool. Mm-hmm. And want to do something now mm-hmm. and just uh, work with other syndicate partners that are also like friends. I mean, it sounds kind of corny, but yeah. Thoughts on the market today. I know you seems yeah. like you're, you believe that there's a lot of noise. I, I would say the market, I would, I would chop it up in that there's a answer I'd give you for the Bay area. Yep. And there's an answer I'd give you for the U S and for the rest of the world. So to me, the rest of the world and in, in certain pockets, I don't know much about, but just through my work with, GGV, where I'm a venture partner. And, and just, are you still a venture partner? Now? I'm still a venture partner, okay. GGV, yeah. Okay. And your LPs are cool with that? It actually really worked out well in the LP process. I think they were like, look, you know, when I started that official venture partner role with them, I'd only been investing for a little over two years. Mm-hmm. And just so that I'm in part of all their partnership meetings, I see all the A rounds, B rounds, mm-hmm. recaps, acquisitions, mm-hmm. down rounds. Um, you know, they just said, hey, as a single GP, why do you still do that? And I'm like, yeah, I'm there for half a day on Monday. I said, I'm learning from pros who've returned capital across right. many, many funds. So they actually view that as a plus. Okay. Um, you know, now I've got four and a half years investing experience. I don't think I could talk to you like I'm talking to you now without that, without right. that exposure. Right. Um, so I think the entrepreneurship you see in places like, um, let's say Berlin or parts of Spain and Portugal, uh, maybe even Paris or Southeast Asia or, or, or places like Brazil and especially in China would, would, would surprise people here. Hmm. The tenacity, hmm. the, um, the drive, mm-hmm. the authenticity around it. Maybe, maybe not, mm-hmm. but just the, the hustle factor, right. I think would surprise right. people. Right. I think in the U S I believe in the Fred Wilson post about spillover effect, which is the, and this will this will back into the Bay Area. I think you're going to see a couple of things emerge, and you're already starting to see a little bit of it, which is tier two, tier three ecosystems emerging with angel investors going out and capital spreading across the country. I'm talking in 10 to 20 years, right? So th- this will happen. I also think that as these 
subcultures emerge in these locations, like let's say a place like Utah or a place like um, Indianapolis, you'll have people who have created one or two really big companies and maybe a couple of others without taking much venture financing. Mm. And so you may have a myth, a local myth emerge of like, why do you need venture funding? So I do believe that will happen mm. over the next 10 to 20 years. The Bay Area is like its own country to me. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm sure you feel that every time you come here. I remember a year ago when we were hanging out and you said you went to Menlo Park and you thought you were in uh, <laughs> in the Twilight Zone somewhere. <laughs> yeah, some of those, yeah, some of those areas around uh, Menlo and Mountain View, it just, it does sometimes feel bizarre. It's a lot of Panera bread. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's um, obviously Stanford is a big force yeah. down there. Apple, yeah. Google, Facebook, LinkedIn. It's a center of a world for a lot of people. But I think the Bay Area, the the issue is because there's so much global instability and because people want to move money out, they move it here. When the money comes on shore here, it goes to the center of the economy, which is moved out here. That in turn, because there's not as much housing and transit here, which hmm. everybody knows, right. creates a lot of local inflation, increases the cost of mobility, right? I can't just hop on a subway and come see you from Market Street here. I've got to yeah. go twist and turn to get here. And so what ends up happening is that when people can't have access to equity in their homes or just renting, most of their income, the lion's share of it goes to um, expenses. And so people then end up needing more salary. So cash is more abundant than liquidity. Right. Um, and so I think what ends up happening is that you get these rounds because there's so much more capital that are just bigger, that are out of line with value. Hmm. Um, and the money's so easy. Like, I just don't know if people even care about the exit right. in a right. way. What about this market today? Is It has you most excited and what has you most nervous? Most nervous is the structural problem I just mentioned, which yep. is the cost of inf the, the local inflation, cost of living, and the cost of mobility. Yeah. And making it break the model for how things get started. Yep. I think what's most exciting is that for every one of those people doing things the wrong way, I think there's 1.2 or 1.3 of those people literally in their home offices, garages, mm. around the Bay Area tinkering on stuff, and you just can't get that anywhere else in the world. And I think there are a lot of people here who are just genuinely doing it for the right reason. They're just not known. Yeah, and I, 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 what's interesting, I mean, we've done a bunch of stuff, and I and I know you've been active around um, the blockchain ecosystem as well. Yeah. That, to me, feels as much about outside the valley as it is inside the valley. Yeah, I mean, we could do a whole separate yeah. pod on that. But yeah. I, totally, it seems, you know, it's definitely a movement. Yeah. It's definitely a developer-led movement. Obviously, there's some pieces of it that are scammy and will need to get washed out. But yeah, it's it's sort of permissionless. It's global. Yeah. It's um, builder-led. Yeah. It can potentially bust up some of the things that have stifled innovation. And it, you know, philosophically can create, you know, the the next open source, like let's say, you know, one of my first investments is HashiCorp. Mm -hmm. Will the next Michel Hashimoto be able to monetize his first creation Vagrant through a token? Semel, congrats on all, uh, on all the progress to date. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for having Excited me. Excited to work together, and uh, and it's great news for for founders that you're gonna get Haystack for a go. Thank you very much. 
This podcast was created by Nick Charles and Alex Lines, partners at Notation Capital. Notation is a pre-seed venture capital firm in New York. We work with technical founding teams in the trenches from day zero. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. Thanks to Carta for sponsoring this episode. eShares is now Carta. We use the product at Notation and recommend it to all the companies we work with. Carta also has a product specifically for LPs. Carta for LPs allows you to easily manage K1s, capital calls, investment KPIs, and more. If you want to learn more about Carta for LPs, visit Carta.com. We'd also like to thank Silicon Valley Bank. SVB is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors. Their experts help innovators, enterprises, and investors move their bold ideas forward. Tap into the experience and connections of the SVB team for advice on strategic, operational, and tactical issues and limited partner insights. Silicon Valley Bank is a member of the FDIC. If you like this episode, please share and remember to tag it with the hashtag OpenLP. 